Our story begins in the third year of King Xerxes of Persia. King Xerxes is an impressive leader. He has control over 127 different provinces. And when we find King Xerxes, he is muscling his force. He is demonstrating his power by bringing everyone into his kingdom hall, bringing people into a massive banquet hall, the Citadel of Susa, and he has them set, seated. He brings them all kinds of amazing food, all kinds of drink. This is an extravagant, luxurious demonstration of his power and his wealth. And he seeks to capstone it with a demonstration, not only of his luxurious economic wealth, but of his personal wealth, his family wealth, the dominion that he has and the people around him. And he calls for Queen Vashti, to come and to dance in front of all of the people here. Now, this isn't just any dance. The Bible says that he calls for her to wear her crown and we can assume not a whole lot else. And so it's a moment where he seeks to demonstrate that he owns not only all of this, but people as well. It is a strong show of force. And so you can imagine as he shows them his kingdoms, his money, his power, his army, and he seeks to show them his women, you can imagine how embarrassing it is when word comes back to the banquet hall, to King Xerxes, that Vashti is not interested in coming. In Esther chapter 1, it says that Vashti refuses the king's order and it immediately sends a ripple of gasps throughout the banquet hall. People don't know what to do with this. They've never seen this before. They can't even imagine somebody saying no to the king. You have to understand that in this world, everything is scripted, everything has protocol, and everything has a very clear set of laws that surround and dictate how you can engage with the king. You have to come to the king with permission. And if you don't have permission, if the king doesn't extend his scepter, you die. And so the idea that somebody, much less the queen, much less a woman, would refuse the order of the king to come and debase herself in front of all of these people, well, you can't imagine that this is a bit of a surprise. And so we get the sense that King Xerxes uh, enjoys his wife, appreciates his wife, likes his wife, but all of the courtiers and the counselors begin to get in his ear and they say, King, you cannot let this stand. Show force, king. Show strength. Show your muscle. You cannot have this. And in fact, it says in the text that they begin to speak to him about what will happen as a result of her refusal. They said, what? Next thing you know, women across the country, wives will begin to tell their husbands, I'm not going to do this and I'm not going to do that. Women will begin to disrespect their husbands as a result of hearing the story of Queen Vashti. Imagine the fear, the nightmare that begins to go into the minds of all these men as they begin to think of women thinking independently and they say, this must not happen. And so when a woman begins to act autonomously, the only response must be legislation and laws. And so they come to the king and they say, king, we have to draft some edicts, some decrees to deal with these free thinking women. And so the king drafts an edict that goes out via horse to every precinct in every part of the kingdom, telling people that this is not acceptable. And Queen Vashti 
who knows what happens to her, but I doubt it's good. Because they must make it clear that King Xerxes is the one and only ruler. That his, that his rule is unquestioned. That his throne is fearsome. And so after he deals with Vashti, the story continues that then they come to him and they say, well, now you need another queen. We dealt with the last one rather unceremoniously, and so we need to find you another one. So a beauty contest goes out amongst all of the land, and they say, we must find the most beautiful woman in all of the land. And so this beauty pageant contest, this macabre sense of women parading themselves in front of this king who doesn't really give them a choice, goes out and women begin to assemble. And this is where we discover our protagonist. The queen of our story, we discover Hadassah. And it tells us in Esther chapter 3 and chapter 2 that Hadassah is the cousin of Mordecai. And Hadassah is a young lady and, had, and we find out that Mordecai nominates her for this contest. We don't get a real clear sense whether or not Hadassah has a choice. We don't get a real clear sense that once she's a part of this contest that that she has a choice at backing out. All we know is that she's so beautiful. It says that her face and her figure are so beautiful that she immediately rises to the top of everyone's expectation of who's going to win this beauty pageant. So much so that the eunuchs and the courtiers begin to give her special treatment. She gets her own apartment within the harem. She gets special beauty treatments for a full year. She is pampered and prepared for the presence of the king to win what? Now, this is a gritty story because it doesn't have all of, the, all of the silences that we would hope from a story from several thousand years ago. It includes details that somewhat threaten the purity of our children's stories. Because it says that the way that these women are to gain the confidence and the appreciation and the choice of the king is that they arrive in the evening and they leave in the morning. And so we find Queen Esther rising to the charge of expectations and she one day gets her opportunity. She goes to the king's court and she goes to the king's residence and she goes in the evening and she leaves in the morning. And the Bible tells us that she gained the king's favor. She gains the king's favor to such a degree that he chooses her as queen and she moves from being little Hadassah to becoming Queen Esther. But Hadassah has a secret. You see, because born Hadassah, she is born a Jew. And Jews are not very popular in this time in the history of the Persian Empire. And Mordecai tells Queen Esther, now Queen Esther, you must know that your heritage must forever remain a secret. Don't tell anyone. And so she becomes Queen Esther and she bears with her a secret about her affiliation with this group of believers. Queen Esther now becomes the second monarch, the second in command, we can assume, with some kind of influence over the kingdom, but she bears this part of her story that she must internalize and keep to herself. Around this same time, the Bible tells us that a man arises to power named Haman. And Haman has his own desires on authority and control because as he comes to power, he begins to want more and more control. 
He gets designated as one of the most powerful people in the country. And when he begins designating one of the most powerful people in the country, he begins to flaunt his authority by going places and expecting people to treat him with authority. And he notices that this Mordecai doesn't bow down the same way as everyone else has. Furthermore, it's easy to look at Mordecai's insubordination because he notices that Mordecai is part of a believing group of distinct people that have their own affiliations outside of the normal monarchy. He says, this man is a Jew. And so he goes to King Xerxes and it says that this happens in the 12th year. So we know that Esther has possibly been in her position now for six years. And he goes to King Xerxes and he says, I'm concerned about the Jews. I'm concerned about the Jews. They are a people that are distinct and they have their own ways and they have their own customs and they have their own beliefs. And it says in verse eight, these people are dispersed amongst the people in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Chapter three, verse eight, their customs are different from those all other people and they do not obey the king's laws and it is in the king's best interest not to tolerate them. And so comes about a set of laws to eradicate the Jews from this time. And the Jews, of course, become concerned and they become scared and they become anxious. Never before, at least in this story, have we seen a threat on the existence of the Jewish people, God's people in this story. Mordecai, seeing no other option, reaches out to Esther and he says, Esther, Esther, we have a problem. Esther, I haven't wanted to put you in this position, Esther. I've wanted you to keep you in a place where you can cut ribbons and dedicate new schools and and smile and wave a lot. But Esther, this moment is serious. This moment is different than any other. Let me put this verse on the screen for you. It begins with this. Mordecai sends an answer. Esther, This law will affect you. And he says, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. He ratchets up the stress and he says, Esther, know this. This law will affect you. And I don't know if you remember six years ago when you were out here with the rest of us, that you are a Jew and this will affect all of us. And if you think that you're in the kingdom and if you're in the palace and this won't touch you, it will. He says this, but if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arrive from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. For such a time as this. One of the most classic and memorable lines from Scripture We know this story of Esther almost because of this line for such a time as this. And Mordecai looks to Esther and he says, Esther, the Lord has ordained it. The Lord has planned it. Maybe it's possible that you're here for this moment. And in this way, we have a story in scripture that connects itself with all the other stories in the Bible that talk about God's people being in the right place at the right time. This is maybe the fundamental theme of all of scripture. When we think of Christians being called, Isaiah, Lord, here am I, send me. We all want to be in the right place at the right time as designated by God. And in this story, we begin to see lots of other parallels because this was common in post-exilic scripture. 
You know the exile when all when Daniel and all of his friends were hauled away to Babylon and when all of the Jews are taken away from their home, this forms the exile. We now know this time period as being a time of mourning, of, of identity confusion as people are thinking to themselves, what does it mean to be a Jew when we no longer live in the place that forms our Jewish identity? And so Daniel and Esther share all kinds of, of similarities. In fact, let me put a list on the screen for you. As we look at Daniel and Esther, there's a list that begins to share all of the similarities. First of all, Daniel and Esther, the books, both have believers exiled in a pagan empire. Number two, believers from both books are recruited for service by the empire. In Daniel and Esther, believers undergo training and trial. In both books, they win favor amongst the courtiers, the eunuchs, the king, everyone. In both books, they face the jealousy of rivals, whether it's the magicians and all of the other people or it's Haman. Number six, they are attacked with accusations of alien subversion. These people are being told that they uh, maybe aren't as uh, in allegiance as everybody else. People are told that maybe these foreigners don't have the same kind of commitment to the local laws as everybody else. The same accusations in both books. This is the identity of exiled people. Number seven, in both books, risk of death by entering the presence of the king. Daniel, same thing. He's nervous. He's concerned. Same thing in the book of Esther. Number eight, in both books, they ask others to pray for them as they prepare to do what they need to do for Number nine, Daniel and Esther are both found faithful spectacularly into this moment. Number 10, in this time, both experience justice to the enemies of God. Well, whereas Daniel's rivals are thrown into the the lion's den, Esther's rival Haman is hung in the gallows that he's prepared. And we find all of these similarities between these books. These are the thoughts that are going through the minds of people that are experiencing post-exile confusion about who they are and what they need to be. People are wondering when we're not where we're supposed to be, when we're in exile, when we're in a foreign land, what does it mean to be a believer? And so I don't think it's a surprise that we begin to find all of these themes moving through these post-exile books. Because remember this. This is a truth that you should know about the scripture if you didn't already. God has inspired many more words than are included in this book. The reason these things are included in this book is because these things transcend the moment and they apply to all of us in all time. Does that make sense? God has inspired lots of things that are not in the Bible. The reason we have what's in the Bible is because it applied then and it applies to us now. So when we begin to see these themes repeated over and over in different stories and in different books, we have to say not only has this been included to apply for us, because we know that's from the whole Bible, but we know this applies to us, especially because the Bible is re-emphasizing it. It's giving us repeated examples, repeated times for us to get this into our heads. But these books are not the same in every way. In fact, they're different in a few crucial illustrative ways. Look at this. Exilic differences between Daniel and Esther. Number one, the presence of God becomes absent. You probably knew this because you've been to, been to church maybe once or twice. Or you've heard a, a preacher tell you this, but the word God and the presence of God is not mentioned one time in the book of Esther. A big difference from the exilic story of Daniel. Number two, the number of faithful exiles becomes fewer. Fewer. 
You remember Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, and we remember all the different people that stand when the music plays, and, and Daniel elsewhere is faithful in the same way. Well, in this story, the number of faithful mentioned are two, down from four, 50%. Number three, the inevitability of victory is less clear and less dependent on a particular person or people. You see, what we have entered into in this moment, what seems to be the theme, because scholars say that Daniel happens uh, in the 600s and Esther happens in the 500s, we're seeing the exile confusion increasing. Time is passing, and yet these stories are close together. Esther probably knew people who knew Daniel. And yet people are forgetting the stories, they're forgetting the old ways, they're forgetting the customs, and the exile is bringing confusion and they've moved now into what we could call a period titled the exiled love, the age of exiled love. The age of exiled love begins to cause confusion because God is loving this people, he's caring for this people, but this people have decisions that they can make. And we also live in an age of exiled love. Exiled love looks like this. God loves, but love requires risk. And when God loves and risk is involved, decisions can be made one way or another. And so in this story, we almost catch a sense where God is holding his breath, wondering how people will react to his teachings and his customs and the stories that they're supposed to know in an age of exiled love where people have choice. You see, if you go all the way to the beginning of scripture, people are the result of God's decision to love us so much that he creates us as autonomous from the Godhead. He says, we will make man in our image. And to make us in God's image means to give us the autonomy of thought and decision. We are separate from God. God could have just simply inhabited another form, a fourth part of the Godhead, and if he wanted more community, but he creates us autonomously. He doesn't create us from a substance of divinity. He leans down and begins to form us from the earth. And he creates even further example of autonomy when he creates Eve from a rib of Adam. These are entities separated from God. And when God creates man and woman, he creates them separately on purpose because he wants them to autonomously choose to love him. This is what love is. Love requires risk. Love requires us to know that we are not being coerced into doing what we're supposed to do. We choose to do it. And whether it's in this book or in the book of Daniel, we know that God has created the general contours of history. He creates he sets in motion and he will conquer in the end. But in the middle, we're in an age of exiled love. God cares, God loves, he's near, but we have choice. In the book of Daniel, I have this, uh, uh, the verses here. They're not on the slides. In the book of Daniel, Daniel is speaking and he says, your majesty, you are the king of kings, the God of heaven. He speaks to Nebuchadnezzar, has given you dominion and power, might and glory. And God has placed all mankind in your hands. Well, you go to the end of that very same prophecy in Daniel chapter 2, and Daniel says, this is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out, but not by humans' hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. 
Daniel makes it clear that God has created the world and he sets these kingdoms into motion, but in the end of time, it will be God, a rock not cut from human hands that brings history to heal. God delegates sovereignty in this time. He doesn't designate our decisions. He doesn't coerce us to choose him. You remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, 26. Are you not aware that I can call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12,000 legions of angels? God could do so, but he doesn't. God delegates sovereignty and love entails this kind of freedom. Freedom entails risk and risk means moral responsibility and moral responsibility is proportionate to the power to influence and the power to influence is irrevocable and the power to influence is finite. God gives us the ability to choose because God wants us to choose him. God wants us to choose him. And as we begin to think through what it means to be a Christian, we have to understand that our choice has risk. And that's risk that God has baked into his relationship with us. Because all the exiles in scripture, whether it's Abraham or Joseph or Jeremiah, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Esther, and Mordecai, these people have choice. They have decisions that they can make when they're exiles and when they're far away from the land, whether or not they will follow what they know to be true. Even Jesus, when we get to the New Testament, tells us, you're not of this world. If you were of the world, the world would have loved you, but instead it hates you. Jesus tells us that he's creating a kingdom and he wants us to be citizens of this kingdom, but he wants us to understand the difference between where we're supposed to be, who we're supposed to be, and what the world asks of us. He wants us to recognize the reality of the, that we are exiled believers. This is what... Um, this is what a fascinating treatment of this subject does. David Kinnaman in his book, Faith for Exiles, says, says this. Jeremiah's writings pulsate with being realistic. Daniel's life is marked by sheer determination to call things as they are. Esther's mantra is, if I perish, I perish. Is yet another example of this radical reality reasoning. As exiles, our resilience depends on our becoming reality recognition artists. Exiles are instrumental to God's purpose. During times of major change and intense pressure, exiles show the way forward. Exiles help to reform and revitalize a church by reorienting it towards God. The faith of exiles represents the hope of the church. You see, we need less people that have forgotten that they're in exile. Think about Daniel and his friends as they stand, as the music plays, and all across the plain of Dura, there are but a few people who remember, this isn't our king, this isn't our God, this isn't our faith, and they remain standing because they refuse to bend the knee to something that is not theirs, that is not their God, that isn't their faith. Think of Esther in this moment when she is reminded, Esther, Mordecai tells her, Esther, you may have forgotten here in the trappings of this kingdom with all of the beautiful food and the sumptuous textures. You may have forgotten, but don't think. Don't think that this won't come to you as well. Don't think that you won't perish as well because you're not from here, Esther. And you need to do something because you're not from around here. And you need to recognize the reality of your exiled existence, of your exiled identity. And you need to recognize who you are 
You see, we need more people in this day and age that recognize who they are. And in this weekend, as we think about all of our seniors graduating, all of you graduating, on baccalaureate weekend, we take a moment and we consider for just a second that maybe you, maybe each and every one of our graduates are at a place in their lives where like never before, they need to understand today in this age, in the year 2020, that you are exiles. And maybe in the same way that it becomes a little dimmer from Daniel to Esther, we can only imagine that it's dimmed ever more for the thousands of years since then. And we are slowly forgetting the story of our exile identity. We're not from around here. And we need to remember where we're from and who we serve because who we serve is greater than all of this. It's greater than here. It's greater than any government in any person in any place in any time. We are exiles. And what it looks like for exiled Christians to begin to remember their exiled identity and maybe what it might look like for all of our graduating seniors to begin to remember might look like something like this. Let me put this list on the screen for you. It might look like maybe the exiled Christians of the class of 2020 understands their priority of faith that unless they experience Jesus, everything else becomes confusing. We don't know what to believe unless we go straight to the cross and understand truth as it is in Jesus. In this age of fake news and every interpretation imaginable, it behooves us as exiled Christians to return to the ideal of experiencing Jesus and seeing truth as it is in Jesus. Number two, Exiled Christians will understand their need for cultural discernment, the need to define the us and the them. You see, we don't like to talk a lot about us and them because we don't want people to be exclusive. But in this moment, it was important for Mordecai to remind Esther, you're not them, Esther. They'll come for you. You don't have Persian immunity. You're a Jew, Esther. And we need to remember who we are in Jesus because when Jesus tells us that we are not of this world, it's important for us to understand where the world ends and where our relationship and citizenship and allegiance to Jesus begins. There is an us and them. That us and them doesn't preclude us from loving the them and living amongst the them, but we have to understand that our allegiance is different. Number three, meaningful relations. These people in every one of these stories, whether it's Daniel with his community of support, whether it's Esther receiving timely advice from Mordecai, we need to be seeking out meaningful community to connect and to belong. And graduates of 2020, as you leave this place, you will never encounter a community that gives you vespers on Friday night with a thousand people. You're not going to encounter a place with music that fills the stage. This is almost uh, synthetic in a sense. And so a lot of graduates leave this place and they say, well, music and vespers and preachers weren't flown in for me, so I don't know what else to do. We have to, as exiled Christians, seek out meaningful relationships to connect and belong to something. That's the only way exiled Christians can survive. We need vocational discipleship. We need to understand what our talents and what our gifts and the major that you spent a lot of money for, how that can be leveraged for good, for a life of service. And lastly, 
We need to understand our countercultural mission. All of these here from Kinnaman, he so beautifully describes resilient faith. We need a faith that can live in the world and still influence the world because so often, When we go out into the world and we leave these kinds of places with our beautiful instruction and training, we become more like the world than the world becomes like us. And Jesus needs people that are willing to go out into the world and love the world in a way that is so countercultural that the world takes notice and the world becomes more like Jesus than us becoming more like the world. We need a generation of Esthers that understand that these moments are serious, that as injustice increases, as wickedness increases, as all manner of serious evil increases, we need a generation of Esthers that can live out these, that can live out these priorities and can begin to know when is their time. Because baccalaureate class of 2020, You didn't graduate five years ago and you're not going to graduate five years from now. You are graduating today in one of the most tumultuous times where unemployment is off the charts, where racial strife is affecting in every community and political conversations are tense and all of us are worried. And you're graduating now. Could it be that as Mordecai's word came to Esther, it comes to us now. And let me put it on the screen for you. This word here. Is it possible that you have come for this moment for such a time as this? Graduates of 2020, we need a generation of Esthers that live for others. A generation of Esthers that take risk for others. A generation of Esthers that are faithful regardless of the consequences. Generation Esther might be a group of people that sees their moment and seeks to join God at every opportunity for whatever it is that God is up to. You see, the profound theological point in that passage is Mordecai looks at Esther and he says, because Esther, if you don't step up to this moment, if, if, then deliverance might come from somewhere else, but you will perish. And that's the beauty of the decision in this exile of love that God has given all of us because God will accomplish his deliverance. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdoms have been set into motion, but there's a rock that'll come that's not cut by human hands and that ends history. God will end history and God will bring justice. And we along the way have a choice whether or not we will step into those moments that require and could use our leverage and influence to affect the world for good. Again, Mordecai says, if you choose not to do something, deliverance will come. I think of my church and I think of our graduating class and I think of all the opportunities that we have as a people, not only in this congregation, but as a denomination. Do we understand That when God seeks to fulfill his commission and when God seeks to fulfill his will, that deliverance will come. And we have a choice whether or not we're a part of the fulfillment of that that deliverance. Deliverance will come whether or not we, as a Seventh-day Adventist body of believers, are a part of that deliverance. Whether or not we as Christians work for that justice isn't set in stone. It will come. Whether or not we're a part of it is a separate question. And whether or not each and every one of our seniors are a part of it, that's a separate question. 
and it's still left to be answered. Deliverance will come, but we need a generation of Esthers that sees their major and their career and their moment and their opportunities as chances to leverage their lives for what God is already up to, for the deliverance that's already coming. And we can step into it and say, here am I. If I perish, then I perish. But as a generation of Esthers, we will do what we need to do. We will go where we need to go. And as Esther says in the very next verse, break the law if we need to, to go to where we need to go to demonstrate our allegiance to Jesus Christ, who is above all kings, who is above all kingdoms, that we might demonstrate that we serve him as our one and only high king. We need a generation of Esthers. And I pray that maybe the class that graduates in 2020 is the class that accepts that this time is their time and today is their day when they might be the ones who answer the call. Again, thank you for joining us this week. We hope that the service was a blessing to you and we're so glad you worshiped with us this Sabbath. Please let us know where you're joining us from. You can send us a message on our social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on our church website. And we pray that you have a wonderful week and God's richest blessings go with you.